Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from Farnham U3A History Group. Talk 13. In this talk, Alan Freeland tells us about Marconi, his life story, technology, his ladies, his politics, and also his legacy. Please note, the sound quality for parts of this recording is less than ideal because of problems with the amplification equipment. So this is the this is the agenda I'm going to go through, and hopefully there's, there's something for everyone. So there is some technology, so well, after the, the bio, the first part, where I should go through his life, we'll pick out a few key moments, key, key events which were influential, but also give us some insight into what he was like as a, as a character. Then a very short section on technology, a, a longer section on the, the ladies in Marconi's life. <laughs> then I'll pick up on two events which impacted the way governments reacted to technology innovations, and they're both very relevant to what we're seeing today with social media. And then we'll finish off with... The last section will be on, on, on politics and, and his, his, his final years. Okay, and I will um, make quite heavy use of my notes. Yeah, so it talks about Guglielmo. I think that's how you pronounce his first name. He's always known as Marconi, probably because in English language his first name is so difficult to pronounce. Um, and he's very much recognised as the man that brought wireless radio to, to the modern world. He's thought of as an inventor, an engineer and an entrepreneur. But despite winning the Nobel Prize, he wasn't really a scientist, and we'll see that later. He was much more interested in the practical benefits of any technology than the theory behind that technology. His vision was to bring to the world point-to-point wireless telegraphy communication. He never really understood the entertainment value of broadcast radio. We'll see the implications of that again later. Uh, And with the benefit of hindsight, we can see that he was not only just first modern developer of communications, but he thought globally. He thought uh, on a world stage, and he brought that technology to the whole world, and we'll see some of the countries involved in that. In his day, he was as famous and as well-known as as Bill Gates, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, all the the leading technologists of today. And he was very adept at being an entrepreneur, so he had the invention but he knew how to marshal resources, he knew how to run a company, he knew how to uh, develop patents and protect those patents through litigation. As I mentioned, many of the issues that we see today with privacy, with state uh, government control over technology versus private companies' development of that technology uh, were very relevant to his day, and those same issues were being discussed in Parliament then. And as we go through, hopefully you'll see there'll be a couple of connections back to some previous talks that we've had here on the Boer War and on the aftermath of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. As we go through, I won't necessarily read out the titles on, on the screen because you can obviously read those. Uh, he was received many accolades during his life. Perhaps the most famous one was the Nobel Prize for Physics, uh, which he shared with a, a German developer. Uh, but you can see those other awards there. So he's recognised in Italy, in America, and in Great Britain. So these are stamps from 1974, 
celebrating 100 years of, of his birth. So you've got here on top left uh, from Portugal a very artistic representation of radio waves. From Monaco, a rather serious and technical depiction. From Brazil, a spiritual silhouette of Marconi. From India, Marconi the statesman. And then two from Africa, from the Republic of Niger, Marconi the visionary. And from Rwanda, the link between Marconi's technology and the technology we have today with the satellites. So I think together they form quite a nice pictorial summary of Marconi the man and his achievement. Okay, so my main source for, for this talk is this book here by uh, Mark Rayboy. He did a huge amount of original research uh, and interviews in putting the book together. And a lot of what we know about Marconi came from his own biographies. And he was very adept at managing the media. He kept rewriting his own history uh, through his life. So that's, that's quite a, a biased story. Um, but in 1998, uh, eight boxes of documents, including family letters, were found in the archives of the Royal, Italian Royal Academy. And these documents included, as I say, letters, personal letters, so gave us great insight into his life. So Mark has included those in his book. And looking at those, those letters, you get two views of Marconi. There was, there was his view, the heroic one of a gifted genius overcoming tremendous odds to succeed, and a more mundane, but I think equally impressive one, where sheer persistence, determination, an engaging and trustworthy personality, and I think very importantly, class privilege and good fortune enabled his success. I should say, I thought the book was a very good read. It's very, very detailed, lots of cross-references. There's over 800 pages of it, um, so it's not a light read. Uh, but I must admit, I did enjoy it. <coughs> okay, so let's look at his family <coughs> and his early life. So the Marconis traced their ancestry back to the 16th century, but their fortunes really changed when in 1817, yeah, what, is, what is now part of the metropolitan city of Boulogne, Domenico Marconi married Teresa Dali, the daughter of a well-established land-owning family. And since this time, the Marconis had a knack of marrying very well. Domenico started a hemp canvas making business and had commercial success in the local markets and later in Tuscany and across Europe. And in fact, the Bolognese canvas became a, a in demand across the whole of Europe. And by the standards of his day, uh, Domenico uh, was, was rich. He invested in property, which further increased his wealth and standing in the community. The couple had five children, including Giuseppe. And unlike his brothers, who went into the law or the church, Giuseppe managed the, the portfolio of property that the Marconis had. The family moved their base to Montgiaro and started raising silkworms and producing silk. Now, I promise you, I didn't set out to find any connection between this and the Silk Road, <laughs> but I couldn't ignore them when they turned up. Um, and it turns out that in the 15th century, Boulogne was a, if not the premier silk production site in Europe, uh, through the invention of this thing called the Bolognese silk mill. It was an important example of industrialization prior to the European Industrial Revolution. Anyway, however, back to uh, Giuseppe. During the Republican insurrection in the papal state of Boulogne, the Marconis fortuitously backed the women's side and were able to acquire a substantial estate that had once belonged to the noble Griffoni family. 
His estate at Ponticcio, nine miles south of Boulogne, included the 17th century Villa Grifoni, which was to become Lielmo's home. Giuseppe married the daughter of his banker, but sadly she died after three years. Giuseppe stayed close to his in-laws, and a few years later was introduced to a customer of theirs, the Jameson Distillery business, and in particular a young Irish woman called Annie Jameson. Annie was a strong Protestant, and whilst Giuseppe was normally a Catholic, he was indifferent to religion. However, Annie's parents were against the marriage, and they eventually had a secret wedding in Boulogne-sur-Mer when Giuseppe was 40 and Annie was 24 or 25. Being able to straddle the Catholic-Protestant divide was another skill that Guglielmo was to inherit. Giuseppe's business flourished, and by 1871 they had three living servants, a housekeeper, a cook, and a stable hand. So Guglielmo was born on the 25th of April, 1874, and his parents rented home in the centre of Boulogne. This was a 17th century Baroque palace decorated with magnificent frescoes and valuable works of art. They still owned Villa Grifoni, and when Guglielmo was 18 months old, they moved back to the villa. It's not known why Annie moved to Bedford, but Guglielmo's older brother Alfonso was educated at Bedford School, while Guglielmo was educated privately. The British immigration process was just as hostile then as it is now. Giuseppe <coughs> filed for application for British naturalisation, but it was rejected, because the application did not meet the requirements in a change in Home Office immigration rules that were made two months after its mission. So Daisy Prescott, who was a cousin of Guglielmo and a few years older, described Guglielmo at age five as a small boy dressed in a blue sailor suit, a remarkably pretty little boy with a fringe of golden brown hair lying low on his forehead, under which a pair of wide open and wonderfully intelligent deep blue eyes looked questioningly about him. He always struck me as being just what an artist would love to choose for his model. Later, second-hand accounts described the young Guglielmo more variously, as quick-witted, strong-willed, introspective, and solitary. But the words most commonly used were focused, disciplined, and determined. Guglielmo grew up speaking both Italian and English, very fluently, but with slight imperfections. In England, his Italianness gave him an exotic air, although his mannerisms were quite British, so much so in Italy, he was sometimes called Inglisino, the little Englishman. The details of Marconi's early life are sparse and sprinkled with gaps, but it's clear as a youth he had a difficult time engaging with formal studies. He did not do particularly well in school, but impressed a succession of private teachers with his enthusiasm and creativity in those subjects he was interested in. The library at Villa Grifoni was, was, and still is, well stocked, and Marconi read widely, everything from heathen mythology to tales of Captain Cook's South Sea voyages to the biography of Benjamin Franklin. Archive letters show the most recurring theme is the health of young Delmo. He suffered a succession of minor complaints, mostly colds and stomach troubles, and the letters reveal some evidence of over-nurturing by his mother, which would continue throughout her life, even after he became well-famous and had children of his own. Guglielmo's adult correspondence with his family and business associates is also well-littered with references to his health, perhaps a characteristic of the time he lived in. So back to the family tree. So sometime in 1885, Annie and the boys moved to Livorno for the better winter weather. A relatively young city found in the late 16th century, it became and still is a major port. In Livorno, Marconi made his first significant non-family relationships that mark his development. Between 85 and 89, he attended the Institut National, a technical school. 
His early studies instilled with him a great interest in physics and chemistry, and especially anything to do with electricity. During the summers, the family returned to Villa Grappoli. As he seemed to have an aptitude for science, his parents arranged for him to receive private lessons from Vincenzo Rosa, a high school physics teacher who maintained a well-equipped laboratory. Rosa later recalled their first meeting when Annie, accompanied by her son, requested physics lessons. You want to take an exam? You have to present yourself in a competition? Rosa asked. No, replied Leonmo. I want to study science. This amazed Rosa. He had never had anybody come to him to study science just for the joy of it. Marconi later more warmly remembered and acknowledged Rosa's influence on his career. In Livorno, Marconi developed a single-minded passion for electrical experiments that occupied him practically to the exclusion of all other activities that would normally fill the time of adolescent boys. The only exceptions were the piano, which he learned from his mother, and a passion for the sea and ships. Another figure that played an important role in Marconi's rapid development in his early years was Professor Augusto Ricci of the University of Bologna. He was an internationally renowned physics physicist who was introduced to the family by common friends. Knowing the right people was to be another key characteristic of how Marconi got things done. And we'll come to Annie's nephew, Henry Jameson, later shortly. Property of the state included a stable, a barn, a chapel, and a large country mansion, where a large room on the upper floor had once been dedicated to raising silkworms. Marconi did his experiments in this room, which is reconstituted today as it was in 1895, and today this building is a, a museum. So I promise not to keep mentioning silk, but just one, one slice aside. I would like to point out in ancient times, the most precious cloth was what was called the cloth of gold. So this was silk thread wrapped around with gold thread. So this meant very glistening, very expensive cloth. So to me, it doesn't seem beyond the bounds of possibility that a machine capable of spinning gold wire around a silk thread could also spin silk thread around a copper wire to create windings <coughs> for radio receivers. In 1893, the Marconis were back full-time in Villa Grifoni, and it was around this time that Marconi read of experiments for German physicist Henrik Hertz on the generation and propagation of radio electromagnetic waves. Hertz's breakthrough had attracted worldwide excitement, but no one had yet found <coughs> a practical application for the discovery. Ricky himself was experimenting with no the so-called Hertzian waves, and may have been the one who introduced Marconi to the phenomenon. However, Ricky was primarily a theoretician and never claimed to be Marconi's mentor, as he is often portrayed. Marconi's own notebook notations show that he was already familiar with Morse code at this time. So the first radio signal. As often with Marconi in the story, there is more than one history. Marconi himself, at different times, claimed the idea of wireless telegraphy came to him in 1894 or in 1895. The timing is significant because in 1894, Oliver Lodge, who was a, an English scientist, and his name will crop up quite a few times during this, demonstrated publicly receiving wireless signals. Lodge's work was published in journals that Marconi may have read. <coughs> However, Marconi's story is that in the summer of 1894, age 20, whilst holidaying in the Italian Alps, the following thought came to him. Man might find new energies in space, new resources and new means of communication. The unencumbered pathways of space for the transmission of human thought have, ever since then, enthralled me. They are inexhaustible springs of inspiration and fresh achievements for the benefit of mankind. 
quite visionary uh, in his thinking. It's worth noting that the best scientific thinking at the time was that while at the widest range was extremely limited. Indeed, Oliver Lodge, who became a critic of Marconi's, declared that wireless had a maximum range of half a, half a mile. Marconi's biography, written shortly before his death, records, When I got back from the Alps, I shut myself up in my attic laboratory and got to work on my new theory. For months, I lived like a hermit. I found two local youths who were prepared to help me. They did not always understand what I was doing, but they were fired by my enthusiasm. It was in the spring of the following year that I made my first great experiment. I had a tr transmitter near the attic window and instructed one of the youths to take the receiver to the other side of a small hill a few hundred yards away, out of sight of the house. Take this gun, I told him. I'll tap three times. If there are three clicks on the receiver, fire the gun. I then called my mother into the room to watch the momentous experiment, and here is what happened. I waited to give the youth time to get to his place, then breathlessly I tapped the key three times. For what seemed an eternity, I waited. Then from the other side of the hill came the sound of a shot. That was the moment when wireless was born. So I think as well as being a visionary, he was quite a dramatist as well. Okay, so we moved to London. So when the discovery occurred in 1894 or 1895, the standard narrative of what happened next, repeating nearly all of Marconi's biographies, was that the family now wrote to the Italian Ministry of Posts and Telegraphs, offering the government the invention. And at receiving no reply, they decided to take it to England. However, there is no documentary evidence that the Marconis actually contacted the Italian government before Annie and Guglielmo left for England. Marconi's own clearest account of what happened, written in 1913, is this. I was advised by my mother's relatives that England was, amongst the European countries, the country in which, owing to its large fleet, extensive coast, and large shipping interests, that my invention would be most readily employed. He added, however, that he made his invention known to the Italian government through General Annibale Ferraro, who was a close friend of the Marconi family, and was then serving as an Italian ambassador to London. Ferraro advised that the young Marconi should apply for patents everywhere and to do so before a secret of his important invention got out. And this is exactly what Marconi did. Ferraro also advised not to expect anything from the Italian government as they were incapable of making decisions. Welcome to Britain. Degna, Marconi's daughter, writes that up until this point her father had been simple and provincial but that moving to England to apply for the patent marked the end of his childhood. A few months shy of his 22nd birthday, he set out on a course that was anything but simple provincial. Moving to the world's most cosmopolitan city, he had to marshal a complex set of legal, financial, entrepreneurial and political skills to advance his goals. And his nephew, Henry Jameson Davis, was a well-connected Irish milling engineer practicing in London. He helped the Marconis get settled, and took his young cousin under his wing. Davis had some experience in both finance and, more importantly, patents, as he had two of his own. Davis set up a meeting with one of London's top patent agents to begin establishing Marconi's rights. Meanwhile, Davis covered Marconi's expenses and turned his own flat into a showroom where Marconi could demonstrate his apparatus. According to contemporary scholars, Marconi's patent was 10 pages of precision and technical clarity and a marvel of completeness. However, Marconi had little to do with the final draft. The 
patent drafting process was the first instance of a working method that Marconi would use for the rest of his life. The method involved collaboration involving the best available experts. Once the initial patent application was out of the way, Davis began introducing Marconi to British engineering circles, and a meeting was requested with William Priest. William Priest, age 62, was the chief engineer at the General Post Office and was a venerable and well-known public figure and the senior authority responsible for developing public communication in Great Britain. Priest's own experimental work trying to establish wireless communication from ship to shore had been widely reported in the British press, but he had never thought of using Hertzian waves, and his research had reached a dead end. Within days, Marconi met Priest at the GPO headquarters in London, and Priest was impressed with the demonstration and the series of tests was then started. September 1st, Marconi and the GPO team decamped to a military training ground at Salisbury Plain for several days of experiments and demonstrations some of them in the presence of army and navy officials. Here they were able to signal over a distance of three quarters of a mile, the greatest achieved thus far. It's amazing that three quarters of a mile is such a fantastic achievement. <laughs> Kemp, a technician on Priest's staff, was soon seconded to work exclusively with Marconi, and he eventually left the GPO to become Marconi's chief assistant in November 1897. One other event had a major effect on uh, Marconi, it must have done on many Italians, and that was the humiliating defeat in October 1896 by Ethiopia in the first Italian-Ethiopian war, the first time a European power had been defeated by an African country. On 12th of December 1896, Priest gave a public talk entitled Telegraphy Without Wires, and Marconi demonstrated his invention publicly for the first time. The press reports were sensational. One read, Towards the close of his lecture, Mr. Priest announced that Mr. Marconi a young Italian electrician, came to him recently with a system of tele telegraphy without wires. Mr. Marconi was present that night, and this was the first occasion on which the apparatus had been shown in public. The apparatus was then exhibited, and what appeared to be just two ordinary boxes were stationed at each end of the room. The current was set in motion at one, and a bell was immediately rung in the other. To show that there was no deception, Mr. Marconi held the receiver and carried it about, the bell ringing whenever vibrations at the other box were set up. In March 1897, barely three months after Marconi was un unveiled to the public, the London Strand magazine did a feature-length story on him. The much-published iconic photograph showing Marconi sitting reflectively in front of his apparatus was taken by the Strand photographer and first published with this article. The image created by the press was one of a young man who could be trusted. At the same time, Marconi quickly became an adept practitioner of image control. Priest continued to publicize Marconi's work and the Italian naval attaché in London arranged for Marconi to demonstrate the invention to the Italian Navy. This he did. As a result, he demonstrated an invention to the King Umberto and Queen Margareta at the Royal Palace. His first British and American patents were awarded. This effectively gave him exclusive rights to the whole of the electromagnetic spectrum. So July the 20th, his cousin Henry Jameson Davis set up in London the Wireless Telegraphy and Signal Company Limited with a venture capitalist funding. Marconi owned 60% of the shares and received £15,000, which is about £1.5 in today's money. And he had control of the board of directors. So Marconi was now a wealthy man to age 23. The Italian Navy announced that it was adopting Marconi's system and Marconi gave them the use of the patent at no charge, 
but they still had to pay for the equipment and the services. Italy thus became the first country to adopt Marconi's system. Marconi was due to do military service in Italy, but because of his connections, he was given only a nominal role in the Italian Navy and seconded to the Italian Embassy in London for three years to continue his research. This taught him another valuable lesson that he would make throughout the rest of his life. With the right connections, anything is possible. The company now also began cultivating business with the private sector, and the first major customer to recognize his commercial potential was the Lloyd Shipping Company. Marconi's goal was now to establish communication with ships at sea, and he set up an experimental station on the Isle of Wight. Soon he succeeded in sending readable signals to a tug in Allen Bay, then to Bournemouth, 14 miles, and then Poole, 18 miles. A lot of hard work put into this. In January 1898, an incident occurred that showed Marconi's flair for taking advantage of an opportunity. The ailing former Prime Minister, William Gladstone, had gone to Bournemouth for his health, followed by a flock of newspaper reporters. It took a turn for the worse, just as a heavy snowstorm I don't know the last time we had a snowstorm in Bournemouth, knocked out the regular telegraph lines. Marconi improvised a wireless transmission link, enabling the journalists to file their copy to London. This incident gave Marconi some good publicity and made him newspaper friends, another pattern he would develop and exploit. Later that year, he was invited to cover the Irish Kingstown sailing regatta for the Dublin-based Daily Express and Evening Mail. Marconi oversaw the operations himself, and once again, enthusiastic accounts appeared in the major world newspapers. It was one of the company's first paid engagements. While Marconi was in Kingstown, the Prince of Wales suffered a knee accident while sailing on the royal yacht off the Isle of Wight. The prince, who had already shown some interest in wireless telegraphy, asked Marconi if he could establish a link between the yacht and Osborne House, Queen Victoria's summer residence on the Isle of Wight so that he could stay in touch with his mother. Nice touch. Marconi was delighted at the opportunity and easily set up the connection. He stayed on the yacht for 16 days, sending daily bulletins to the Queen and enjoying himself. 16 days! In September 98, Marconi moved his South Coast laboratory to the Haven Hotel at Sandbanks. His overriding goal was distance and finding ways to increase it. He was convinced that there was theoretically no limit to the extent that wireless signals could travel. The Haven became Marconi's principal English domestic research station and often his home for the next 27 years. He would happily spend weeks at a time in the Haven and in the early days, he would often be accompanied there by Annie or Afonso. It took just under four hours to get to the Haven from London Waterloo Station. It takes three hours today, so that's progress. Marconi spent as much time as he could driving his men hard. A large room on the ground floor served as the main laboratory with other work carried on in a cluster of outbuildings. The team worked long hours, but the atmosphere was highly sociable, everyone sharing a common table at dinner, which was often followed by homemade musical entertainment. One of Marconi's colleagues would play the cello, Alfonso, when present, the violin, Annie might sing, and Marconi always would play the piano. In his letters to his mother during this time, they are conversational and chatty, and touch on family as well as business. In one example, he urges her to insist that Giuseppe, his father, get good clothes if he comes to England. Please know that some very grand people come to see me, and it would not do if he did not have nice clothes. I think, I think it's a nice touch of an almost Englishman telling an Italian how to dress well. Annie's letters were newsy, but also motherly. She worried that Marconi was so busy that he hardly had time to eat. 
In December 98, the company set up the world's first wireless factory in Chelmsford. Nobody seems to know why they chose Chelmsford. By now, Marconi understood the value of media attention and how to get it. So he set about demonstrating a wireless communication across the English Channel. He built a wireless station on the beach near Boulogne-sur-Mer, where his parents had married, and in March 1899, with a London Times reporter present, Marconi sent a message across the 32-mile channel to Folkestone. Public interest was immense. The New York Times reported that the wireless channel crossing had astounded the world and now anointed Marconi as the inventor of wireless, despite the recognition due to scientists like Tesla, Rihi and Lodge. As the Times philosophized, men who do something practical are usually the ones that eventually get the credit. Crossing the English Channel had tremendous symbolic value and Marconi's supporters were also ecstatic. Agnes Baden-Powell, who Marconi had befriended after her brother's visit to Salisbury, wrote... It is a splendid triumph, notwithstanding the presence of the group of French sceptics. Unfortunately, the book doesn't expand on that point. Of all the accolades, the one that must have pleased Marconi the most was the letter he received from William Priest. My dear Marconi, I congratulate you very much on your success between Folkestone and Boulogne. I never had a doubt of it. Marconi was approached by James Gordon Bennett, Jr., the publisher of the New York Herald and an avid yachtsman and offered £5,000 to report on the America's Cup races between New York Yacht Club's Columbia and Sir Thomas Lipton's yacht Shamrock. Bennett was known for making news happen. He had sent the explorer Henry Stanley on his legendary expedition to find David Livingstone, and Bennett's paper had been the first to report on the inventions of the telegraph and the light bulb, and Marconi recognised the value of having such a powerful media contact. The coverage of the regatta was a great success. This is how the Herald reported Marconi's first U.S. performance. From the chart room of the steamship Ponce, messages were flashed by wireless telegraphy to New York City. Signor Marconi was greatly hampered in his work, but never complained. Questions were always answered, and few of the women passengers went ashore without first having the system of wireless telegraphy explained to them in all its intricacy. He does go on to say at that next point is many of them were more interested in the man than his work. <laughs> they met a young man with an erect, athletic figure who spoke with a quaint English mannerisms. The experience was a turning point in the US Navy's view of Marconi's system. A Navy observer said, this is no experiment. Senior Marconi shows by his every move that he has passed the stage of uncertainty. In the near future, wireless telegraphy will be in general use by the navies of the world. Its value cannot be too highly estimated. The publicity Marconi received was priceless and also precisely what he wanted. Already known to specialists in the United States, his name now became a household world. He was in the press nearly every day for over a month. The Italian Chamber of Commerce fated him with a banquet where speakers declared Marconi to be one of Italy's gifts to the world, putting him on a par with Michelangelo and Columbus. Despite significant interest in the USA government, the government's insistence on wanting to own the equipment outright, and Marconi's insistence that his company would only lease the equipment, meant in the end the USA government developed their own system. And whilst he was in America, the Marconi Wireless Telegraph Company of America was incorporated with exclusive rights to exploit Marconi's patents. They raised $10 million to float the company, and it was like a 1990s dot-com. It had no foreseeable revenue stream. In 1899, fearful of another war with Britain, the South African Republic contracted with Siemens for the supply of radio equipment. 
This is considered to be the world's first military order for commercial radio equipment. However, the equipment arrived after South Africa and the Orange Free State had declared war on Britain, and the equipment was confiscated by British Customs. Marconi, who had also bid for the South African contract, now got its first UK government contract with the British War Office. Six Marconi engineers and five wireless sets intended for use on ship were sent to the Royal Engineers. The sets proved to be too bulky for successful use in the field, and they were redeployed to ships performing naval blockades. The British experience in South Africa undoubtedly contributed to the Admiralty's decision to equip 28 warships with Marconi equipment a few months later. By 1900, Marconi and his companies were being accepted as the leading wireless telegraphic company. His patents were being confirmed, orders and revenue were coming in, but the company was far from profitable. Marconi decided the key breakthrough would be transatlantic communication. It would allow him to take significant profit from the cable companies that had a monopoly in transatlantic telegraphy. In order to keep his plan secret, Marconi called the project the Great Thing. Many scientists of the day were convinced transatlantic wireless communication was impossible because radio waves traveled in a straight line. They did not follow the curvature of the Earth. For the British site, Marconi chose a site above Poldu Cove near the village of Munion on the Lizard Peninsula in Cornwall. Marconi traveled constantly between London, Dorset and Cornwall during construction of the Poldu station in the fall of 1900. It was a long train ride with three changes and then seven miles from the station at Helston to the Poldu Hotel by horse-drawn carriage. James Ambrose Fleming was the chief scientist lead for the Poldu station and the success of the station was equally his as Marconi's. In early 1901, Marconi went to America to find a location for and set up the American Telegraph Station, and Marconi chose a site on Cape Cod at Holbrook House in Wellfleet, then the only place to stay in the area. Ever resourceful, he discovered there was a householder nearby who cooked authentic Italian dishes, and he borrowed a horse to ride over for a home-cooked meal. There was no electricity on the outer Cape, so his team had to generate their own. Building supplies were brought in from Boston by train and thence to site by horse and cart. And the use of horses and, uh, and the fact there's no electricity there, I think, reminds us of the state of the technology at the time. While building the wireless station and the huge 100-foot-high aerials, Marconi got concerned about the great distances involved. Up to then, the greatest distance achieved was less than 50 miles. He decided to try and make the transatlantic connection with Newfoundland, a British colony that was more than 900 miles closer to Poldu than Cape Cod. While the decision was fortuitous for radio, it was a disaster for his love life, as we shall see later. There was, however, an apparently insurmountable obstacle. The cable company, Anglo-American Telegraph, had acquired a monopoly concession for telegraphic communication to and from Newfoundland but Marconi chose to ignore this fact. Marconi spent 19 days in Newfoundland, and his time there has probably had more media attention than any other. It has been fictionalized, dramatized, commemorated in stage and radio performances and TV documentaries, and there's even been a puppet show. The factual details of what happened on Thursday, 12th of December, 1901, are lost in mythology. A few cryptic notes in Marconi's and his assistant Kemp's diaries are the only documentary evidence. There were no witnesses. Marconi claims they received from Poldu the three dots of Morse code for S at 12.30, 13.10, and again at 14.20. Despite the lack of witnesses, such was Marconi's reputation that when he announced to the world, he was largely believed. Thomas Edison, who believed the radio waves went in straight lines and thought what Marconi was attempting was impossible, when he heard the news, he said, if 
Marconi says he did it, it must be so. Marconi was just 27 years old. Scientists faced with a seemingly impossible feat subsequently hypothesized a layer in the atmosphere which, which reflected radio signals back to Earth. The layer later became known as the ionosphere, and its presence was subsequently proved in 1927 by Edward Appleton, who received a Nobel Prize for his work. As noted, Anglo-American Telegraph Company had exclusive rights to telegraphy in Newfoundland and placed an injunction on Marconi preventing further experiments. Canada's Prime Minister seized the opportunity to welcome Marconi to Canada. Marconi was fated by the Canadians. A specially chartered train was put at his disposal to bring him to Ottawa. Uh, Marconi was taken on sleigh rides to a New Year's Day toboggan party. He spent time socialising young ladies and meeting the great and the good of the city. A contract was signed in principle for the Canadian government to purchase $80,000 worth of telegraph stations, uh, which is worth around $2 million in today's money, and Marconi agreed to provide a transatlantic telegraphy services at 40% of the cost of the cable services. The contract was exactly the type Marconi preferred, a public-private partnership. Infrastructure laid at public expense by private companies able to make a profit. So by 1902, the Marconi Company was appointing agents across the world, Argentina, Brazil, Chile, India and Holland. By 1903, Marconi organised another PR event and had President Roosevelt send a message to the King of England, the first wireless telegraphy message from the USA. His successes were applauded back in Italy, and every time he returned, he was fated. On May the 4th, 1903, the King and Queen of Italy gave a dinner where the German Emperor was also in attendance. This was the first time the two had met. When they were introduced, the Kaiser, trying to be friendly, said to Signor Marconi, You must not think I have any animosity against yourself. It is the policy of your company I object to. To which Marconi replied, your Imperial Majesty, I should be overwhelmed if I thought you had any personal animosity against me. However, it is I who decide the policy of my company. And we'll see later why the Kaiser was quite so annoyed. Marconi's systems were used by the Japanese in the Russo-Japanese War, whilst the Russians' Navy used a rival system from Telefunken in Germany. Telefunken's system failed to work effectively, while the Japanese Marconi system played a key role in the Japanese naval defeat of Russia. After the war, the Russian Tsar had Marconi systems installed in palaces in Moscow and St. Petersburg. And when in 1933 Marconi visited Japan, he was awarded the highest honour possible by the Japanese Emperor, the Order of the Rising Sun. And although Marconi in public speeches kept emphasising that his invention was primary an instrument of peace, bringing nations together, Marconi's company made a huge amount of money from military conflicts. Finally, after years of negotiation, the British government passed the Wireless Telegraphy Act of 1904. It established what was to become the norm around the world, government control over wireless communications and later broadcasts. It gave Marconi companies a 15-year contract for the provision of wireless messages with North America, similar to the rights enjoyed by the cable companies. Only British subjects were allowed to be employed as operators. Marconi thus achieved one of his dreams, to tame the cable companies. In 1906, disagreement between Marconi Company Managing Director Cuthbert Hall, who was a free enterprise capitalist and against public sector engagement, and Marconi who preferred to work with rather than against government, led to Marconi issuing an ultimatum to the board. Either Hall goes or Marconi goes, and Hall was sacked. Marconi then ran the company till a replacement was found in Godfrey Isaacs in 1910. So for more than three years, Marconi was both leading technical research and running the company. 
1909, the cruise ship RMS Republic was hit by another ship off Massachusetts and started sinking. The radio operator managed to issue an SOS call, and of the 1,200 people on board, all but six were saved. A new class of hero had been invented, the ship's radio operator, known as the Marconi Man. On September 29, 1911, the Kingdom of Italy declared war on Ottoman Turkey over conflicting interests in North Africa and patriotic Marconi dropped everything he was doing to offer his services to the Italian cause. At Tobruk, in Libya, near the border with Egypt, Marconi worked on improving communication between army field units and improving the portability of the equipment and making it less susceptible to jamming and interference. And in 1912, an interview with Marconi described a recent invention of his, a wireless compass, which by a process of triangulation allowed ships to determine their position by using radio stations. This was an early form of GPS. Marconi was never able to settle in one place, and he kept moving his family. In 1912, they rented Eaglehurst House on the Hampshire coast. Queen Victoria considered making it her country home before adopting Osborne House. But just in case you're interested, the last price on rightmove.co.uk was £6.5 million. From here, his wife Beatrice and daughter Degna could see the transatlantic liners sail past on their way to America. Indeed, on April the 10th, 1912, they saw the Titanic pass by. Later in 1912, while driving Beatrice in his new powerful 50-horsepower Fiat near Genoa, he crashed into an oncoming vehicle. Marconi was the only one seriously injured. He lost the sight of one eye. His friends noted that after the accident, Marconi's youthful character changed, and he became sadder and older. In 1914, Marconi was knighted, and he was also awarded Italy's highest honour, Senator of the Realm, a lifetime position giving him her place in the Senate. During the First World War, Marconi took on diplomatic roles to persuade Italy to side with the British and the French. His movements in Britain were now subject to the Aliens Registration Act, forcing him to register his movements about the country. At the end of the war, he continued his diplomacy role, particularly trying to get America to provide much-needed wheat and coal for Italy to aid its recovery. He met President Wilson and dressed the House of Representatives. He also tried to get agreement on the Adriatic question, working with UK, Italy and America. The Adriatic question concerns the fate of the former Austro-Hungarian territories on the east coast of the Adriatic, that Italy felt should belong to Italy as spoils of victory. This was as agreed in the Treaty of London of 1915, but was not delivered. From Marconi's viewpoint, the way Italy was treated after the war, the greed of Britain and France, and the lack of support from America, left a sour taste with him and increasingly he became more patriotic towards Italy and desired a strong and powerful Italy. In 1914, wireless direction-finding radar developed by Marconi engineer H.J. Round was used along the entire Western Front. It also tracked German fleet movements in the North Sea prior to the Battle of Jutland. World War I had shown the Americans the importance of wireless, and they were determined to seek dominance in this technology. President Wilson put pressure on the American General Electric Company to make this happen, and with the risk of losing his business in America, Marconi agreed to a buyout by GE of their American company. The new company was called Radio Corporation of America, RCA. Ever since his childhood in Livorno, Marconi had loved the sea and sailing. His most relaxing times were when crossing the Atlantic in a luxury cruise ship. So in 1919, he bought a ship which he named Electra. It was 220 foot long and devoured 10 tons of coal a day. The Electra became his wireless research lab, his transport between London and Rome, and somewhere to entertain the great and the good, and his wife Beatrice and his mistresses, sometimes all at the same time.
The views expressed by the speaker are not necessarily the same as those held by the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. This podcast is produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A Group.